it takes light like a second, a little over a second to get to the moon. The furthest we can see out into the universe uh, represents a distance that takes light 13 billion, a little more than 13 billion years to travel. So in terms of what we physically have been to, it's, it's nothing. I mean, it's not even a drop in the bucket. It's, space is just incredibly huge. And that's of the, the portion of the universe that's just in one direction looking out. Welcome to Unwinding, a podcast that tells the human stories driving the minds and talents of the University of Kansas. In each episode, we explore a new topic of interest for a faculty member from the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and learn what makes the heart of KU beat. Whatever the topic, Unwinding explores the fascinations and motivations that produce new discoveries. Unwinding is hosted and produced by Alex Folsom, the college's digital communications strategist. Welcome to another episode of Unwinding. I'm your host, Alex Folsom, and our guest today is Associate Teaching Professor Jennifer Delgado from the Department of Physics and Astronomy. Listen as I chat with Professor Delgado about the stretches of the universe, the summer of alien news, and how anyone can contribute to new discoveries at KU. We want to give special thanks to the Department of Theater and Dance for providing us with the space to record this episode. If you'd like to know more about the college at KU, visit us on our website, college.ku.edu, Find us on social media under our handle, KU College, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And you can check out more podcasts like this one at blog.college.ku.edu. Enjoy our chat with Professor Delgado. We're here today with Associate Teaching Professor Jennifer Delgado from the Department of Physics and Astronomy. Welcome, Professor Delgado. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. If we could kind of start with you, um, kind of giving us a little bit of background on what makes you an expert in this field. So my background is in astrophysics. I got a PhD in astrophysics, and I actually studied basically galactic sort of processes. Um, So what does that mean, galactic processes? I studied these things called superbubbles, when a bunch of um, stars die all at once, really energetically, they can change the structure of a galaxy. And I simulated all of that in a massive supercomputer and then made synthetic observations, basically fake and fake observations. So you can compare it to real observations and say, hey, do we understand this system? So where did you do that? Where did you do your um, studying? Uh, so I got my PhD at the University of Minnesota, um, and I yeah, was there for a few years, and then I came here to uh, teach. Oh, very yeah. cool. So uh, what made you so interested in this kind of um, work, especially something that to a lot of people is so far beyond comprehension? Uh, well, I mean, it's, I, I like new things. I like to learn about things that are new and different and just sort of out of the everyday experience. And space, I think, represents kind of the ultimate version of that. I mean, you could have 
so many different places and um, just experiences that are completely different. I mean, space is huge, and we know there are planets surrounding other stars, and we know that those planets have a wide variety um, of conditions. And I, I just, I think all of that's cool. I think the possibilities of space are really cool, and uh, studying astrophysics was the way for me to be kind of closer to those things. That's really cool. So, you know, as like a, like a child or even, you know, a high school student or something, is there some way that you first got your feet wet in this field? Yeah, when I was seven, my grandparents gave me a the big golden book of stars and planets. And it, it had like a, just short little paragraphs about the sun and each of the planets and stars. And I, I just thought this was the coolest thing I'd ever heard about by far. And so then I went to my school library and I read every book they had on every single planet. Um, and I just, I, I kind of knew from then, I was like, I, I'm pretty sure I want to just do something with space. I didn't know what, I didn't even know what, I didn't know astronomer was an actual job. Um, so it took me a while to kind of figure out exactly what I wanted to do with it. But yeah, it was, I've always been really interested in space stuff. That's cool. So th does that mean, though, that you're, um, you're doing a lot of work, you know, in high school prepping with kind of math and that stuff? Is that kind of your focus at that point? Um, well, so, yeah, I did. Like I said, I didn't know. My parents hadn't, they didn't finish college. I didn't really know anybody who did any sort of science. So I, I didn't know. Um, we had career fairs and stuff. And the advice I always heard was just take everything. So I took every science class that they had at my high school. I took every math class. And um, I wasn't that terribly great at the math, but I was persistent with it. Um, and some of that was useful in college, but then it all kind of started over again in college in terms of like, just take all the things again. Um, I was told early on, if, you, if you're interested in astronomy, try to find an astronomy program. If you can't find that, do physics, because astronomy is basically, uh, it's, a, it's an applied kind of physics. You're applying the knowledge we know about how things work here on Earth to things that we we can't touch and we can't go to, so. That's really cool. I think that's something that a, a lot of people kind of trying to get into a field like this may not understand is that that basically you're applying something that happens here on Earth to space is kind of what you're saying there. Yeah, yeah, it's basically, I mean, so astronomy is, it's like, it's just physics with planets and stars. I mean, we, we astronomers are limited by the, the kind of things that we can study because like biologists and chemists they can they can actually be up next to the things that they're studying they can have more controlled experiments astronomers can't do that we can receive light and occasionally we receive things like meteorites um, but we and just recently we've got you know neutrino and gravitational wave kind of astronomy so that well neutrinos have been around for a while i mean so we can get some pieces of information and from that information it's it's really cool all of the things that you can then determine from that just by taking the um, physics that we learned here on earth and saying you know we can apply these kinds of rules and knowledge that we have here on earth to these systems and limit sort of what possibilities there are you know obviously everyone's first thought when it comes to space is at least my first thought i should say maybe not everyone probably those who have more of a background in this wouldn't say this but space seems essentially endless you know that's kind of the thing everyone always talks about um so with that in mind kind of like how can you kind of put into context you know where we are in terms of studying what's out there beyond our atmosphere um so in terms of where we visited it's really small um in terms of what we understand it's also again really small so 
you want to look at it in terms of where we've been to, we've been to, with humans, the moon. Um, we've technically been to the edge of our solar system. It takes light like a second, a little over a second, to get to the moon. The furthest we can see out into the universe uh, represents a distance that takes light 13 billion, a little more than 13 billion years to travel. So in terms of what we physically have been to, it's, it's nothing. I mean, it's not even a drop in the bucket. It's, space is just incredibly huge. And that's of the, the portion of the universe that's just in one direction looking out. Um, so the, we, we haven't been anywhere. Um, in terms of then what we know about it, we also have difficulties because most of the, uh, the things that we interact with on a daily basis, like you know, our, ourselves, um, chairs, the air, all of that is a type of matter that only represents about 4% of the energy density of the universe. About a fourth of it is this stuff called dark matter, and then the rest of it is this stuff called dark energy, and we don't understand that yet at all. Those are big mysteries. Um, so we really don't know the universe as well as I think sometimes we, um, I don't think, we don't know it as well as we'd certainly like to. So, um, you know, kind of getting back to like the dark energy and dark matter and those kinds of things, like how would someone go about studying something like dark energy? Like how do you even, for the first time, discover that it's something that exists? Uh, so that comes from arguments about the universe and um, it, it deals with general relativity. So I'm not a huge expert on a lot of this, but the basic story kind of goes that you can, um, based off of the a couple of different experiments. One is uh, like supernova. So there's a certain type of supernova called a supernova type 1A. And um, it has a sort of set amount of energy that it releases in an explosion. And then when it re explodes, it's releasing sort of a set amount of light, which basically gives you like a standard, what's called a standard candle. You know how bright it's supposed to be. And so you can figure out where it is based off of how bright it appears to be. So if it's farther, it looks dimmer. If it's closer, it's brighter. Um, and those standard candles are telling us something about how the universe is expanding. And you can take that information, and you can also take over the leftover information from the Big Bang, this um, cosmic microwave background radiation. And those two things together tell you that dark matter and um, normal matter that we kind of experience doesn't represent enough energy density. So there's something else out there that, that would have to account for the energy density of the universe that we observe from these experiments. Um, and it's this mysterious thing that could be related to the cosmological constant or, or maybe not. You know, that part I'm less sure on. So I, that's... It sounds li so it sounds like a lot of this stuff, you know, is still theoretical, as you said. You know, there's... I mean, it's, it's based off of observational evidence. We have pretty good observational evidence that the universe appears to be flat and that um, the expansion of the universe is accelerating. Uh, we've, we've, we can, there's decent arguments for that, um, really, really, really strong arguments for it, but it, it still builds into it, like you said, theoretical understanding. Um, the problem is you can't just say, ah, it's theory, and we can dismiss it. You need to replace it with something that not only accounts for everything that we're observing, but then something more, which if you had a really good understanding of, somebody could come up with a really good model of dark energy, you may be able to do that, but not something anyone has yet that other people would largely agree with. As someone with a, you know, a Bachelor of Arts background in a humanities, this is stuff that I've always been kind of interested in, but I've never really been able to grasp because it is so, you know, expansive. 
And I think that kind of plays into what we kind of talked about, you know, when setting up this session is the idea of life in the universe. Um, it seems to be something that is a lot more prominent today. People are talking about it a lot more this summer, you know, with like the storming of the alleged storming of Area 51, yeah. which didn't seem to happen. Um, do you think the expansiveness of space really plays into those kind of ideas? Is that something you've seen as oh, you've studied? Yeah, no, there's this really, there's this thing called the Drake equation, which is, um, it's just sort of a way of, it's, it's making up stuff in a sensible way, because it's basically asking questions on, you know, how many new stars do you expect? And those stars, how many do you expect them to have Earth-like planets? How many of those Earth-like planets do you expect to evolve life and intelligent life? And how long do you expect that intelligent life to last? It's sort of just, it's asking sort of just a, a probability question. And you can make up whatever you want to. You can make it so that, yeah, for sure, we know there's there's got to be stuff out there or no, none of it could exist. But trying to constrain those probabilities is something that science can tackle. We can ask questions like, you know, how many Earth-like planets are there out there? And that's something that is a really big um, sort of push for astronomers are trying to capture those, those Earth analogs, planets that are of similar mass and composition and similar distances or, you know, distant-like uh, things to their host stars. So are they in a, in a, are they separated from their host star a distance that would allow for liquid water? Um, trying to find planets that seem to fit the same conditions that we have here on Earth so that we could try to constrain better, hey, could life then exist on these planets? Because we know it's here, and this is the only example we've got. So the simplest thing is to just try to go out and ask those subsequent questions. Can we go find things like our planet, and then do those planets have life like anything like ours? So kind of break that down for me a little more. So I've always wondered that, you know, because it seems like when you see images, um, you know, of distant planets and those kinds of things, you know, it's always some kind of like blob in the sky kind of thing. So, so I, we don't have, we don't have any, Im we had, we don't have the image of a surface of a planet. That, right. that doesn't, I, yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking more of like, you know, when they show those things, it's more of like a, a dot, you know, like in, and it's, it's a dot among many dots. And I know that you're looking at the distance of that dot to a star. So those are the kinds of things you use to kind of decide if there is life, potential for life on a, a different planet. So, so if you want to find a planet, you're, what you're really doing is you're f trying to find its effect on its host star. So um, one of the first ways that they found planets was actually around a pulsar. This is a star that's kind of like a lighthouse. It sends out these repeated pulses, these blasts actually. Um, we get, we pick it up in the radio, but it'd also probably be blasting some x-rays. But these blasts, um, sort of sweep past regularly, just like a lighthouse would sweep. And we notice this extra, we, scientists notice this extra little blip in it that was the signal being interrupted by something being there. It was a planet. The way that then they afterwards found a lot of planets was through a tug. So you could imagine like, um, if you held hands with somebody and you guys spun around together and one of you was like just a lot bigger than the other, the bigger person doesn't wobble or spin around as much as the, the smaller person does. The same thing happens with stars. We pull on our star. We, we tug at it. Our gravitational force is equal to it, its gravitational force. We're just so much less massive, we don't wobble. Jupiter and planets big like Jupiter will tug on their host stars really strongly and you'll see this as a Doppler shift in the star's light. So you'll actually see the light from the star 
like um, it'll just like if you hear as cars pass you, you're hearing this change in the pitch of the sound. You will see a change in the frequency of the light. It'll be blue shifted and then red shifted. And that oscillation can be picked up and help you determine the uh, limits on the mass of the planet and its period of you know, the time it takes for it to go around its host star. They found that. And then the last way, one of the last ways is you can see that planet shadow in a sense, like it'll step in front of its host star along your line of sight and you'll see a dimming of the host star's light. Other things can cause some of this stuff, so there's always this, okay, let's double check these kinds of things. But you're not, we don't get to just, we don't have the ability, the, the, the technology for it is oh, far from us to be able to directly image that planet um, because the star's so bright and it's everything's so far away. I think that's something that is really helpful to people like me who have very limited understanding of what's going on. Because, you know, what I'm getting at there with like kind of the idea of the images, you go on CNN or, you know, NBC News or something like that, and they're like, look at this satellite image or something of, and you're like, I don't know what I'm looking at. So what you guys are actually doing is much more, it's not necessarily looking at a picture of what's going on, they it's all, looking at... They always provide an artist concept image. Right. In fact, I just saw this argument on Twitter amongst astronomers about the ethics of this, because they just recently... So that, that last thing I start mentioned, where this planet sort of transits in front of its host star and you see the dip in the light, you can actually get a little piece of that star's light passing through that planet's atmosphere, which then can be used to figure out the composition of that planet's atmosphere, which is awesome, because that planet in particular was exciting because you could pick up the information that there's water in that planet's atmosphere. Um, and that's really useful because we expect life to need water. Um, but with it came all of these news stories that had an artist's conception of the planet. And a lot of people interpreted this as, we, we found an Earth-like analog here going on with its, and this is what it looks like. And um, I, know, I know some astronomers are upset by that, because it, it, then it moves into being misleading when we don't, we, don't know what, we don't know what that thing looks like. So, you know, when they do something like that, they really want to, they're obviously trying to show to a lay person, hey, here's what the thing would look like if we could look at it. Because if they don't have an image, maybe people aren't interested. Is that kind of the thought behind that? I would guess so, sure, yeah. I mean, we're, we all have limited imaginations to some extent. And so I think just having an image helps sells the, the stuff. Um, yeah, I, I don't, there's not really a science reason, I don't think, for doing it. Yeah, I mean, I'm imagining if it has nothing, if scientists had their way, there would be no image included, I'm sure, or... No, I mean, that's not, uh, scientists, they really, I mean, yeah, we, I think most scientists are, are want to share. I think scientists want to get other people excited. I don't, I don't think it's, I think it's more concerned that um, the, the distinction between, hey, we s actually saw this thing, and no, we've gotten information from which we could infer its properties, and then those properties could be like this thing that we're drawing. I, I think that that distinction bothers, you know, it bothers scientists because we, we want to be honest. We want to present as best we can the clearest understanding that we have and not be misleading. That makes a lot more sense, because I definitely think, um, I, I will be honest, I have someone who has seen those before and kind of been like, oh, wow, they've been able to observe this place, and here's kind of what they, they saw, and said it's, no, we had, as you said, these waves and kind of the way light is, you know, passing, like you said, through the atmosphere, which I think is fascinating, that something that is so far away and so tiny 
that we're looking at, you know, because of its distance, and you can say, well, there's this in the atmosphere of it. And I think that's probably a part of why so many people, when it comes to things in space, kind of tend to want to maybe not engage with that or think like that, because it's so far out there. Do you yeah. kind of agree with that? Uh, yeah, there's, there's some abstraction required um, to try to deal with some of it. Um, yeah. And I mean, uh, Hubble, you know, they always, Hubble always has these beautiful images of, you know, stars dying and uh, even local nearby solar system planets. So I think sometimes the, the uh, expectation for what kind of cool things we should get to see has been, you know, brought up to sort of a level that we've, other, other realms of studying things in space can't quite get to yet. I think that's um, kind of, you know, I think when we kind of bring it back to this alien idea is that, you know, well, if these planets are so far away yeah. and we can't even get an image of them, we're getting, you know, these pulses and sure. light and all of that, then how are we supposed to believe, you know, is kind of the pushback I've seen before, like that those people, or not people, but th that life could have potentially come here. And um, so in speaking kind of about um, alien life or life outside of Earth, I think it's important to start with like, you know, on Mars, they're often looking for microscopic organisms yeah. instead of like, hey, there's a civilization here. It's like, was there ever something living on this planet? And that could be a, a single-celled organism, correct? Yeah, so um, the, the sort of standard answer to the question of are there aliens is, I don't know. And then if pressed, it becomes, well, microscopic life is likely and more advanced life is less likely. And that, that comes from looking at our own planet. So if you look at our own planet, there's evidence, really strong evidence for life just within a billion years after our planet formed. Um, and there's even some evidence that it was even, it was half that time. Like after 500 million years, you get life. Um, so basically, if you have liquid water, you're going to get life, the simple life. Um, but it takes like another 3 billion years after that simple life evolves to get even uh, interesting things like mollusks or, you know, like mm -hmm. to get, you have the, the Cambrian explosion 500 million years ago, you start getting, you know, all this range of invertebrates and cool things that we would start to think of as, oh, this is interesting life, but that's not even quite in what we might call intelligent life. That doesn't happen for another couple hundred million. I mean, not until two million years ago is when the first hominids showed up. So if you look at that in terms of probabilities, like you just said, if I went to go visit the Earth at any one time, what would I find? Well, your chances of finding microbial life are really good, but your chances of finding you know, something that you might see as like an alien animal, an alien human sort of analog, are really small. So um, when we want to go out and look at the universe, we're, we're asking questions like, is there water first? Because we know if we get water, we can at least get Earth-like life. And then we're searching for things like microbes on Mars, because at this point, that, that's what we might expect to find, that if Mars had really early oceans, that you would see that you might be able to see some of that life having evolved either on Mars or here on Earth, and went to Mars or evolved on Mars and came here to Earth. There's some fun unanswered questions there. But Obviously, kind of what, as I said earlier, pushed this idea into being part of this podcast is this summer was kind of the summer of aliens. And so, you know, as part of that, I, we kind of were talking about some articles that were out there and videos yeah. um, and, you know, allegedly have been confirmed by the Navy as being true, unidentified 
flying objects, you know, it kind of seems like even with them being confirmed that they don't know what they are, it doesn't mean they're not from Earth. Is that? Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things I, that we don't understand. That doesn't mean that they have to be one answer. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, I, I saw, yeah, I watched some of those videos. They're, they're kind of interesting. Um, they don't, there's not a lot of contextual information, um, so it's hard to pin it down much further. Um, so yeah, no, we, I, I, I think it, identifying something as a UFO in the literal sense, an unidentified flying object makes sense. Like, I don't know what that is. Um, but science kind of just doesn't, science doesn't let us say, well, if I don't know what it is, it has to be this thing. It has to be aliens. It, 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 saying I don't know is an acceptable answer. And then saying, what kind of information would I need to go collect in order to try to get um, a better handle? And if not the answer, um, what questions to ask next? Because you know, you don't, you don't, we don't have to have the answer yet if the data is not there to support it. It's okay to say, I don't, I don't know yet. I don't know. I think that's hard for a lot of people. And I think you know because the idea, it seems, you know, is that science is so advanced from where we were, even. 50 years ago in terms of computing power and all those things. So like, why don't we have the answer? And the answer to that is, well, humans have not been around long enough to have gotten even outside of our own solar system, if I'm not incorrect in that. Yeah, no, we are, we have the Voyager probes are, um, they've gone outside the solar system a few times, uh, but they're, they're basically at the, the limit of um, the sun's influence in some sense. It's, it's, solar wind influence. Yeah, they're about a they're a little past 100 astronomical units. So they're about 100 times farther from um, the sun than we are from the sun. So they're out there. But that that's that's a that's it. That's not even I mean our closest neighbor star is like four and a half light years away. Four and a half light years would take an enormous amount of time for those Voyager probes to reach. They're they're we're, we haven't gotten anywhere. Yeah, so we couldn't we couldn't go get it. It's not we can't we can't we can't. I mean, the idea that we could just go out and just like visit all the planets so that we could see it right now is just not not even close to possible. Um, because if I'm not mistaken, there is a uh, a satellite or something around Saturn now. Is that correct? And so, but I mean, that's a planet that we have been aware of for quite a long time and we're just now recently oh no we've sent out stuff so the voyager probes we, we send out robots all the time like robot right. robots are the big deal like we send out we've, we've sent out robots to study um jupiter and right now the juno probe maybe is, is studying um jupiter a lot and studying some of the moons around jupiter um we had recently sent out the cassini huygens probe and that studied the moons of titan or one of saturn's moons titan um there's even some proposals to send more probes, robots, basically, out to Titan, because Titan's really interesting. It has this thick uh, methane atmosphere, and there's really, really weird chemistry going on there. Um, we send robots out all the time. They don't, they haven't made it past our solar system. So they go out, they study places in our solar system, but we as humans have gone to the moon, we send our robots out to parts of the solar system, but we haven't been past that in any sense, any of our I mean, we are still trying to figure out a way to get people to Mars, and you know that's our closest neighbor, correct? Yeah, yeah. And well, it's, so Venus is. I mean, it depends on what time you're looking at, and Venus is closer to Earth. If everything were lined up, it would be closer. Um, Mars is just going to be more interesting because Venus is kind of 
Venus is incredibly hot. It has a temperature of like over 800 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's not really useful to us in the sense of, hey, we might be able to establish a colony here, or maybe find um, some life. It's, it's hot and very dry in terms of water. There's not a lot of water content left. See, this is the kind of thing that happens when you read news only and don't actually ever talk to anyone in the thing. You're like, yeah, we haven't been to Saturn until recently. Like, no, we've actually been there a lot. And so it's kind of, that's kind of what this... We've had flybys, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, this kind it's of thing is looking to do is to bring this stuff out, you know, sure. because a lot of people, like probably like me, some of them probably better read in it, but don't necessarily know these things, and that's how we get back to the idea of, well, there's a UFO you know, on video, so that means aliens are real. And then what you're saying is like, yeah. it means that we don't know what that thing is, and it could be any number of things. There's, there's, I mean, there's, yeah, there's actually, there's hundreds of, there's hundreds and thousands of things that have been classified by various government agencies as UFOs. It doesn't mean aliens. It just means I don't know what that is uh, yet. And if we go back and obtain more data, if it's possible, we might be able to say, oh, that was a planet. Oh, that was this airplane. Oh, this was this previously classified aircraft that we didn't want to tell anybody about or that other countries didn't want to tell anybody about. Um, so a lot of times you can go back, and, oh, that's what that was. Sometimes you can't because enough of pieces of information to make those kind of discernments are gone. But no, it doesn't mean this is aliens, unfortunately. I mean people who want to find aliens. Yeah. Well, I think that's just one of those um, questions that everyone has is, you know, if what else is out there? Is this it? Are we the only planet? You know, some people want to say, yes, we're the best. Others are like, no, we can't be. If we have this, that means it's out there. And I think that's what's so fascinating to me about this is trying to figure out, you know, putting the idea of aliens in context. And as I'm learning today, the context is so expansive that we have barely even gotten out into that context yeah. to learn more about it. So, I mean, we, I think a lot of times people, too, they think that we spend all this money on space. Why don't we know more? And there's like a little frustration, like, where's my rocket ship, NASA? Um, but I think what people don't always know is that NASA actually operates on a pretty small budget relative. Like, so when we went to the moon, it had an operating budget of like a few percent of the national, the total national budget, like I think around three or four percent. Not sure exactly. Uh, now NASA operates on less than half a percent of the total national budget, and they're still doing things like building these big Hubble giant telescopes, still trying to construct these probes, still trying to understand what's going on. And I mean, we we, given our limited resources, I I think that you know we we do try to understand what's out there. It's just so enormously huge, and we have such a limited. Um, limited ability to just go out and get it. We, we have to really be clever about it and have to use what information we have just basically being brought to us, and that's light. Um, and that, that does rely on building bigger telescopes. But um, yeah, I'm not sure if I answered your question or not. But no, you definitely did. I think um, it kind of speaks to, it seems like priorities have shifted some in the way that that kind of research is funded at least at the federal level and in, in the programs there. How is it something that a place like KU and the research that's done here can, without obviously building a rocket because we don't have the budget for that, um, how can we affect the research or students even here or our researchers, how are they affecting those kinds of things from the ground? So like how do we do more science astronomy research? Yeah, or like, you know, because 
like the research that's being done, I know that they're using tools like the Hubble telescope and those kind of national or you know, things that are actually out in space, but a lot of that work is done by people who are sitting in an office somewhere. It's not yes. people in yeah. a spaceship, it's not people no. on the moon. It's, it's just a scientist sitting at a computer and modeling out these kinds of things. So yeah, so I did, I did, I did modeling kinds of things. I, I made up uh, simulations, and then I would make synthetic observations that I would then bring to a real observationalists who would, we would make comparisons. Um, a lot of what a lot of astronomers do is sort of that other end of it, the people who actually use telescopes to observe. So a lot of that funding does come from the federal government and through NASA, and then the observational astronomers are the ones who are saying, hey, we should, we should build a telescope that can observe at these wavelengths, or hey, we should really build a telescope with, say, these proportions, or if there's already a built telescope, they submit observing proposals that are things like, hey, we should observe in these regions so that they can um, try to answer some of those questions. We don't right now have at KU anyone who studies specifically planets. We will next semester, next spring, um, I will be getting a new, a couple of new astronomy professors, one of whom will study planetary atmospheres and was on that paper that I mentioned earlier about water being transmitted through the atmosphere. So um, certainly if students are involved or want to be involved in this, any kind of astronomy research, I, I know all the astronomy professors would love to have undergraduates say, hey, yeah, I want to do some astronomy research. Um, they've got projects ready to go. Yeah. That's really cool. I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize when they think about these kinds of things is that there are young people who can be involved in that stuff. And I think that's something that's unique about a place like KU. I mean, I know a lot of schools have departments that do those same things, but like you said, we are able to bring in researchers who are working at the national, international level and making yeah. real discoveries and, and finding things that are kind of changing the discussion. Yeah, we just, so um, one of our professors, Allison Kirkpatrick, just had a brief little news blip about um, the cold quasars. So these are black holes at the centers of galaxies, and um, they thought the quasars wouldn't lead to star form, or quasars could sort of shut off star formation, but she found galaxies that, that had quasars and were still forming stars. They still had their cold gas. Really cool stuff. Um, but yeah, if people are interested in doing astronomy or physics research, um, come be our majors, come, you know, <laughs> to research. Um, sometimes it's hard to get into it if you don't have the math background or some of the physics background, but not always. Sometimes there are projects that we had a film studies student a while back who started working with a professor just retired, Professor Hawley. So, um, yeah. Yeah, who was an astronaut who actually has been yes. to space. So he yes. has actually done some of that work. He went to space, yes, <laughs> multiple <laughs> times. Well, and it, kind of talking about students who maybe don't quite have the background to get into the research, but the class you're teaching this semester, the quest for extraterrestrial life. Yes. So that class, is it, it's open to people who don't necessarily have that background. Yeah, they just had to have had uh, some type of introductory science course. I think there's some limits on it, but... We have students in there who come from biology and chemistry and not really any of those, but have taken a few of those classes. Um, it's, it's trying to understand extraterrestrial life actually requires backgrounds from all over. And some of the questions we even went through, I was like, I will not be able to answer in this class because they are philosophical or based in understanding humans and how, like, what would happen if aliens arrived. Um, it's a really interesting question, but we we have limited tools in physics to answer how humans would behave if aliens showed up. So we can't, 
I can't personally cover that too much in the class, but um, yeah, so we, we get kind of a variety of stuff we can talk about in there. That's really cool. So like, you know, I know you said like a question would be like, what happens if aliens were come to come to Earth, but what other kind of stuff do you do in there? Like, is there kind of some introductory modeling on some of these things or? Yeah, so one of the things we talk about is like the, the Drake equation and trying to understand, um, since my background is in astronomy, just what the astronomical limits on this problem are. So, you know, you go back 30 years and a lot of people are like, yeah, there's probably planets around other stars, but we didn't have the data to argue that. And now we know there's there's planets everywhere just about. We, ex we expect that most uh, stars will have a planet. Um, and then the question is now kind of what of those stars do we expect to have something that we would consider Earth-like planet at the right distance with the right mass? Um, and that's something that is an active area of research, trying to find those Earth analogs. And then if you find those Earth analogs, which of those actually have liquid water? And that's something we're trying. So a lot of it is not providing definite answers, like, yep, the aliens are over there, we're going to send them a message. It's more of like, what, if we look out at the universe and we say, here are all the stars, which of those stars would be useful to us? Because some of them aren't. Some of them live very short lifetimes, few, few million years. Those are the ones that I model, the ones that live short lifetimes and then just explode. Um, those are less useful for finding life. So we, we talk about if you were to go out and design your own sort of search for aliens, you wouldn't look at stars like that. You would try to find stars that are more like our own sun or even less massive than our own sun, things that will live much longer, more stable lives so that you have that time to try to evolve a species that maybe you could communicate with. And we haven't gotten to it yet, but talking about some too, that those massive distances, I mean, the Milky Way is 100,000 light years across, and we're kind of out in the boonies of it. We're, we're far from the glittering center. That means that just even trying to talk to an alien is really difficult. We have, we've had radio for our, on the order of 100 years. So our radio signals are about 100 light years away from us. That's a you know, fraction, a thousandth <laughs> of, of that distance. Yeah. So, I mean, it, there, there's just, there's ways we can draw sort of lines around what we know might be more possible and what is probably impossible. Um, and it's in that place where we say, okay, this is more possible, that we can ask more targeted questions of like, yeah, it could, it could be that you have really wild energy-based aliens out there. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but if we just keep drawing these smaller circles of, okay, well, maybe we can find Earth-like planets. Maybe we can find Earth-like planets with water of those. Maybe we can start detecting sort of biosignatures, like seeing um, diatomic oxygen. If we can see oxygen in these atmospheres, then we've got a really good indication that somebody's photosynthesizing. And that's a really, that, that, that's an argument for life that is um, fairly indisputable. So if we can find that, we get ourselves a part of the answer that you may want. Still doesn't tell us if we could be friends. Still doesn't tell us, you know, like some of those deeper questions of, you know, where they came from. And, but um, it provides pieces of the big questions. And that's, I think, all we can really do at this point. As you said, you know, um, kind of in closing, we are asking questions that would take an infinite amount of time to answer. Hopefully um. not infinite. <laughs> Hopefully not infinite. No, I hope, I hope by the end of my lifetime, we know more definitively how many Earth-like planets there are out there. Maybe not the answer to life, but I really, I think by the end of my lifetime, we should be able to have answered better that question of Earth analogs, how frequent those are. And maybe it's, 
other people that have to deal with the alien part. I guess kind of in closing, is there anything besides your class that you would kind of like anyone to know about um, what you're working on or anything like that? Um, I guess what I'd like to say that maybe students don't know is that we have colloquiums, um, and this is true of every department, but if students are interested in a subject, I strongly recommend that they go to colloquiums. Some of the times it won't be useful because it would be just a lot of jargon, but sometimes you'll get to learn stuff that's just you didn't know about and you like you're saying there, there's stuff we didn't even know that we didn't know this thing and uh, while you're at college that's a perfect time to go out and just meet people who have uh, just depths of knowledge that are incredible um, and I really strongly recommend students do that um, it's enjoyable and I think opens new things for people and for those who don't know what a colloquium is, do you want to give a little bit Yeah, good call. That? Thank you. No, so colloquiums are these things where departments invite either one of their own professors or a speaker from another institution to come and talk for an hour about the things that they've been researching. Um, so usually the first 15 minutes most people can have access to, like, oh, I get what's going on, and then it tends to get deeper and deeper. <laughs> but there's usually free food involved. and Always a good selling point. Yeah, and they're usually, they're usually in the afternoons, so um, just check people's department websites. Ours is Monday at 4. Um, we have the good cookies, so um, they should come hang out with us. Yeah. Learn a little bit about astronomy, have a good cookie. We, we won't have any astronomers this fall, but we, will, we, just, we invite all kinds of people. We'll have people that talk about all kinds of different physics, and we, we've in, we invite biologists and geologists and mathematicians around, too, because we, we like to just hang out with different kinds of people. Well, that's something I think that is the benefit of being in a liberal arts you know, we're the college within the university here. And I think that's something that is underappreciated is the ability to kind of do so many different things outside of your comfort zone, learning new ideas. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the basis of this podcast. So cool. I really appreciate you being here today. This was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. It definitely showed how little I know about this subject. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very cool. And I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.